All right, it is now 8.34 in New York. You're listening to WKCR-FM New York, WKCR-HD. That's 89.9 on the FM dial as well as WKCR.org online. My name is Josh Kazali, and you're listening to Monday Morningside. Today is Monday, February 14th. Uh, it's an exciting day here in the station. Love is in the air. Love is on the air, in fact. Uh, thanks to JW for playing those beautiful jazz standards just before us. Today we have a lovely show for you planned. Um, later you're going to hear about the women's basketball team, which if you've been tuned into WKCR Sports has been playing phenomenally. Uh, after that we have... Um, just Above Midtown. That's the Art Fart segment hosted by Georgina Brainerd. That's the exhibition uh, that's currently playing at MoMA. It's fantastic, and you can still check it out. Uh, but first, I want to hear from uh, my good friend Millie Hopkins uh, went out into the field looking for love on recording, in fact. Uh, this is Found Sound. It's a new segment. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. I think it's fantastic. And all the music that you're going to be hearing was recorded live in New York. Hey there, I'm Millie, and I'm going to be doing a segment on Josh's show every once in a while where I go and find found sounds around New York over the weekend and bring it back to you in a little compressed file every Monday morning. I'm going to try to find live music, interviews, talk to people on the street, use ambient noise. Hopefully it's a fun time that brings a big swath of New York into your radio. I'm hoping this show will be a love letter to New York, so I figured it would be a great way to inaugurate it with a Valentine's Day episode. My weekend started with a typical college party. At any college party, there's this unspoken optimism that begins the night, like you're going to meet someone and really hit it off and your conversation will meander into a quiet corner and be really intimate and profound really quickly. Well, luckily for me, after a few hours, all the couples either quarantined themselves to the couches or the taken people left to go back home to their lovers, and all the good conversationalists were left in the corner with me. I was talking about love this morning with a New York Times criminal investigator at Hungarian. It checks out. I was telling her that I think a lot of people, the way they love someone is like they'll say, I love them because they make me feel good. And I think that's wrong. And I think we should love people because we see them as whole people. And we love them for who they are wholly. And she agreed with me. So I guess what I'm trying to say is now I work for the New York Times. And what is in the vein of of New York Times? If you had to define modern love, what would it be? A mess. A mess. It doesn't exist anymore. No. No. All performers. Did someone dissuade you of, of love? And so I realized I had to ask my corner buddies about their worst dates. What's the worst hangout you've been on? This is a great story because, okay, he asked me out to lunch, um, which I really didn't want to do, but I did it. He was like, I'm going to give you a bunch of random hypotheticals to see, like, what situations make you mad. It was like, what would you do if I ignored you in public? What would you do if you if you found out from our friends that I was talking shit about you? And then the last one was, in fact, what would you do if we went out to party and the next day you wake up and I'm there, don't know what that means, and you have no recollection of the night before because I put a drug in your drink? What? Yeah. And I was like, what? That's... 
that's incredible. Why would you sort of drug me? Uh, and he was like, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, I've done that to my friends before. How did you leave the situation eventually? Oh, he got a call from his dad, who was, like, also his business partner. Uh, oh, God. Probably in high school, like, closeted. I was, I was friends-ish with this guy, and, you know, somebody told me, she's like, oh, you gotta, you gotta kiss Jonathan, and I was like, oh, God, I do. And it was just so... It was just so awkward about it. We went to like his friend Michael's car, and I was like, "Oh God!" And just, just it was bad. And I remember just being like, "What? Were you gagging?" Yeah. We went to eat gelato. He invited his friend with him, and then I invited my friend because he invited his friend. So then it just became a hang with gelato. Going out for gelato is so funny because it's such that's like four bites. Like you take your four bites of gelato and then what? You have that tiny little spoon. Are you supposed to like sell? So it's like if you invite me to gelato, like you got to be ready to talk. And so I'd gotten all this great source information from the party, but I'd promised Josh a sound-based podcast, and otherwise my weekend had been pretty quiet, or at least so I thought. I was sitting in Ferris Booth Commons when somebody started playing the piano, first so imperceptibly that I didn't even pick it up. It was this really gentle, romantic sound, so I asked him if I could record him. Hi, I'm Gabe Guo, a junior majoring in computer science, and this is my piano music. I went was a music venue where two women named Jenna were playing. Uh, Jenna number one is the vocalist and guitarist of Jay Rosie and also the songwriter. And Jenna number two is the cellist. Sitting in the audience listening, I got kind of obsessed with the way these two Jennas were working like yin and yang. On the one hand, the songwriter with her blue glitter eyeshadow and sequins glued onto her cheekbone, has been writing these incredibly melancholic songs of heartbreak. And the other Jenna is totally silent, but is creating this sound of pure optimism and like ascension and uplift. I wanted to ask about their artistic process together, so I went uh, backstage. Meet up on the spot. Yeah. Most, yeah. I would say it's, it's 100% a hundred percent of the time. Really? No, like I would say seventy percent of the time. When you're writing songs that are mostly about heartbreak, but this fellow has this sound of optimism, like mm-hmm. it has this beautiful, like lilting kind of lighty quality to it. Yeah. Did you guys always know you wanted to balance it like that? It really just takes like an instrument like the cello. Like it takes something really 
with such an interesting and deep and like warm tone and character to bring that out of the other people playing the music, but also out of the like music itself, you know? As you've gotten older and gone through more like love experience, yeah, love, heartbreak, yeah. whatever, has that does it translate into an absolutely. instrument? Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, when, when I was little and I was doing cello, there was no emotional attachment. For up until probably two years ago, mm-hmm. when I started to experience like relationships and loving people, and then I was like, oh, I have this outlet I can use to get rid of these awful feelings. Has there ever been a time in your life where it's been too much to play, or where you've had to play to process something? Absolutely. Sometimes I'll get up in the middle of the night, and I'll be yeah. like, I need to get out something. Yeah. Like I need to release energy in some way, because that's the only way I've ever known how to, really. So you'll wake up in the middle of the night Literally, and Literally, at 3 a.m., and I'll play cello, and my neighbors will be like, shut the f*** up. It just feels, music is kind of this portal to the big emotions of life. Do you guys find yourself falling in love with other musicians? Only, strictly. Strictly. Only other musicians. Not for you. (laughs) Tough track record on that, I think. A violinist came up and played at that venue after them. His music was also totally transportive. Melancholic, but optimistic at the same time. his instrument totally captured the feeling of wanting to be loved. Especially of trying to say it and not being able to quite. It made me think about something one of the Jennas had just told me. There are songs that just won't hit to the right audience, you know what I mean? Like, it's, like if you're not able to give context like that, or if you're not able to kind of provide a, a fuller picture of like what is needed to understand the song. I... But when she said that, I just couldn't help but think of my piano playing friend from earlier that day. She liked it. I think she would have had a different reaction if she knew I wrote it for her. If only he had given her the context.
Of course, there's no one way to connect love with music. I did go to a lingerie-themed Valentine's Day party that very night, and everyone was singing along to Doja Cat's Kiss Me More. Indeed, the line they're singing is... starts new beginnings all that good stuff thing you look for in a lover kindness compatibility compatibility Hell yeah reliability well i hope you got some good advice for valentine's day thanks for listening have a good one it's been a pleasure sharing and i'll see you on the next segment Big thanks to Millie Hopkins for bringing us that segment, um, and I look forward to her next one. It's uh, a beautiful story of uh, not just the sounds, but the people in New York City, um, so definitely looking forward to bringing you that once again. Um, and yeah, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's the 13th. It's now 8.47 in the morning. I uh, hope you're all uh, finding that special someone in your life. Uh Either they're there or you're well on the way. Um, I think we're all somewhere on that journey together. Um, And hopefully here at WKCR, we're providing the music that goes behind it. Uh, Those two things are pretty closely related, as I'm sure you have found and I'm I'm sure you will find as you continue to move on that journey. My next segment is from another Josh, Josh Capillion, who is the, the... acting sports head here at WKCR. If you've tuned into one of our live broadcasts, I'm sure you've heard. Um, they do great work. Um, and specifically, our women's basketball team has been uh, picking up a lot of steam. It's been exciting. I've got here a uh, highlight reel from a and one three. Lions lead 56-38. Six minutes left in the, sec- in the third quarter. Lions with the ball. Shoe puts up a deep three. Oh. Fouled on the three. It's good. Abby Shoe is from a different planet. She does not know how to miss, folks. That's WKCR's yeah, Ted Schmeidler on the right call uh, with August Phillips. Three. Got fouled on that one. Just completely changing the game. Abby Shoe has 19 points already. Five for seven from three. Just hit an and one three. Yeah, and this is her first trip to the free throw line. And she puts in the free throw, no doubt about it, completes the four-point play. Lions lead 56-38, to 38, six minutes left in the, se- in the third quarter. So suffice it to say, the women's basketball team has been performing uh, very well. March, Madless, March Madness is on the line. Um, for more, I go to my conversation with Josh Capillion. I'm here with Josh Capillion, who is our librarian here at WKCR, as well as acting sports head. Um, he's been a part of the revival of sports programming here at WKCR. How are you doing today, Josh? I am doing great. It's very great to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're so happy to have sports again at WKCR. Um, when did that begin for you? 
So, I mean, I came in here as a freshman back in 2019. So back when there was still some sports programming happening. Mm -hmm. um, but I came in actually involved with the jazz department. So I never really saw what was going on with that. And then, of course, COVID hit. We did our last broadcast early March of 2020. And then we really went two and a half years without doing any sports coverage. So for me, getting this back off the ground didn't really start until last August. Mm -hmm. Um I was having some discussions with some other folks at the station, um, Sam Seliger, our program director, uh, Skylar, our station manager, mm -hmm. and we got together. We had some talks with Columbia Athletics, and eventually a few months later, back in October, mm -hmm. we were able to do our first broadcast in really over two and a half years. We did the homecoming game there, and... Now, at this point, we've done, I want to say, nine different games. Yeah, it's been a lot. Um, and it's been just really cool getting to see this stuff uh, built really from the ground up again, yeah. uh, both from a tech perspective, because anyone who had done it beforehand had graduated, so there was none of this kind of institutional knowledge we were able to carry over. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing that kind of be able to be revitalized and see how much passion there is both within KCR and some folks outside that have now wanted to get involved. Mm -hmm. um, it's just been really a pleasure to get to work with all these folks and get to rebuild the sports department again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's been a fun thing to witness kind of, like you said, it's from the ground up, which is really exciting. So Definitely stay tuned for more broadcasts. And I want to talk specifically about this women's basketball team, which yep. I've been hearing all about. If you're on campus, you know about them. Uh, they're playing really, really well. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably a massive understatement. <laughs> they are uh, they're doing things that this program's really never done before, of course. Uh, Columbia only started accepting women back in the 80s, so it's about mm -hmm. a 30-year-old program program. Uh, 35 I want to say um and historically they've just never done well and now we have this uh new coach uh, Megan Griffith and these last few years the program's just completely done a 180 mm -hmm. last year they had the best year in program history went 12 and 2 in uh against Ivy they were one win away from actually making March Madness for the first time in program history and lost to Princeton unfortunately um so to be able to see them go back, do it again, and arguably doing it even better so far this season has been really impressive to watch and uh, selfishly has been very fun to get to cover yeah, with KCR absolutely. that just the timing of this uh, lines up well. And they have a really, really good chance of being able to do what they weren't able to get done last year and make March Madness. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be so thrilling for Columbia Athletics. You know, I think... Sometimes, uh, you know, Columbia is a very urban campus. It's sometimes hard to rally around a sports team. But I do feel like I've had a lot of friends be like, oh, no, like, you've got to go to this game. Like, it's going to be really, really fun. Like, there's a lot of energy behind this team. And it's it's yeah, really exciting. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, just a there's a camaraderie that I'm seeing that I think all four years I've been here, I've never really felt that before yeah. uh, with our sports teams and just being able to be a part of that. Um, I've gone, even games we're not covering, I've just kind of gone, sat in as a fan, and the energy is just, it's electric. To, uh, there's really no other way to put it. And I think it also having the court so close to campus, really being on mm -hmm. campus, yeah. really helps with that. You can go, and it's right there. And 
it's really just a great time for everyone involved. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, I'm knocking on wood here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they, they're they playing really well. They're, they've got a chance to do what they missed last time, and they missed the, uh, the March Madness. You know, what would that mean, do you think, as, uh, you know, a big part of Columbia sports at this point um, to be in that tournament? I think it was really just historic is the best word. It's mm-hmm. something that this program's never been able to do uh, in their relatively short history. And to be able to do it on the backs of a team that's just so well put together, um, everybody is really contributing, and a team where you have almost 50% of which are seniors and will be graduating this year. You have Caitlin mm. Davis who got the first triple-double in program history a few months wow. back. Um, Jada Patrick and other contributors like that who um, just mean so much to the team, and this is their last opportunity to be doing it for Columbia. Um, to see that happen would just be huge for uh, the school, the program, the organization. Yeah, absolutely. And so at this point, um, you know, it's not quite March yet. It's February. Um, you know, what has to go right for them to make it into that that's that's that pocket yeah so uh so first of all there's still four more regular season games left Mm -hmm. both of their games against princeton who's arguably uh the other kind of big heavy hitter Mm -hmm. who knocked us out last who knocked us out last year yes we've faced them uh both times this season so they're we don't need to face them at all for the rest of the regular season but we still have a few tough matchups to go um, so ideally, especially since you've already lost two against Ivy this year, really winning all four of those, not necessarily a must, but definitely really important at that point is on to the Ivy championships. Mm-hmm. Those will be down in Princeton, um, the semis on Friday, March 10th, and then the finals, uh, also down in Princeton on, uh, Saturday, the 11th and if Columbia is able to win both of those, that's an automatic buy, and that would, of course, be the ideal situation. Right. Of course, you have uh, and uh, ESPN's bracketology. Mm-hmm. They're predicting that potentially, even if they lose the Ivy Championship, there's a chance that they still get one of those at-large bids. Of course, yeah. the determining factors of what goes into those always a little bit of a mystery. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure if unfortunately we don't get the best outcome we'll all be kind of at the edge of our seat watching on the the night of the 12th as they announce those bids all right well we'll keep our eyes tuned to the 12th um and i guess just looking forward for wkcr sports um what are you excited about uh for this spring semester we'll be broadcasting i know a lot of people are excited about baseball which we'll be bringing back um any other things that we can look forward to as the sports department starts to I become a little bit more active? Yeah, so actually last week we had kind of just a general interest meeting uh, to get new folks in, and there's just a lot of brand new people to KCR that are super passionate about sports, and a lot of them specifically in baseball. Mm -hmm. So there'll be a lot of programming there that's going to be happening. And even with this basketball team, we've got one more Mm -hmm. home game for women's basketball. That'll be on March 4th. Of course, we'll be covering the men's team next Saturday. Mm -hmm. And assuming they can make the finals, uh, we will definitely be covering that. That's March 11th. As I said before, 5 p.m. at Princeton. That'll be on WKCR. And um, 
we're we've been in talks with Columbia Athletics and just with our kind of higher ups at KCR to try to get funding to hopefully be able to go cover the women's team in March Madness. Yes. Assuming that that's able to happen. And if people at home might be interested in supporting uh, Columbia Athletics or WKCR Sports Department, uh, is there any hope for them? Yeah, absolutely. So actually, just yesterday we released a new line of WKCR sports merch. So we have a jersey. You can wear number 89 in support for 89.9 FM. We have uh, one of those kind of like athletic mesh-fitting shirts uh, with a nice new WKCR sports logo. And also just a water bottle if you want to stay hydrated while you're going on a run or even if you just want to stay hydrated while listening to these broadcasts. So those are all up right now. Those are on WKCR.org. And the money from that will be going to helping us uh, in terms of travel and lodging to um, be able to hopefully do these March Madness broadcasts. And of course, any money above that will go to other general WKCR operations. So Mm -hmm. all the rest of the programming that you all know and love will continue to get support. So if any of that interests you, feel free to check those out on WKCR.org. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining me today, Josh. Um, and best of luck to the women's basketball team. Uh, go Lions. Yeah, go Lions. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to Josh Capillion for sitting down with me. Um, and yeah, congrats to the women's basketball team. We'll continue to stay tuned to that. Um, it is now... 9.8.59 in the morning here in New York City. You're listening to WKCR-FM New York. That's 89.9 on the dial here in New York City, as well as WKCR-HD and WKCR.org online. My name is Josh Kazali, and you're listening to Monday Morningside. You just heard an interview with Josh Capillion about the women's basketball team here. I wanted to give a quick look forward into the upcoming special broadcast here in WKCR. We have on the 21st a Nina Simone birthday broadcast. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, And then the 25th and the 26th of February is the Country Music Festival. It's back. It's two full days of country music. It's going to be lots of fun. There's a little bit of live in there. And then finally, right after that, we have on the 27th, a Dexter Gordon Centennial broadcast, 100 years. Look forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Next up is Art Fart. Uh, It's hosted by Georgina Brainerd. And uh, the featured exhibition this week is just above Midtown or Jam which was an art gallery and self-described laboratory led by Linda Good Bryant that foregrounded African-American artists and artists of color. It was open from 1974 until 1968. It was a place where black art flourished and debate was cultivated. That's from the MoMA's website. It's still on exhibition. You can find it now. Let's go to Georgina Brainerd as she leads us through a review of Just Above Midtown. What are we thinking? Like a hello, welcome back. Like hello, welcome to season two of Art Fart. Yeah, season two. Hello, welcome. Welcome to season two of Art Fart. I am Georgina, your host. And in this segment, we I bring two friends to see an exhibition with me and then we get to talk about it. Today, we are going to be talking about um, just above Midtown, Changing Spaces, Changing Spaces, which is a exhibition at MoMA 
which unfortunately does close on the 18th. So when you're listening to this, you should really think about either going really soon or like finding some video because you're going to miss it very soon. But it's been open since October. It's about the gallery that was started by Linda Good Bryant that was open from 1974 to 1986. It um, took place in three different spaces because they were consistently evicted. It was a... um, a space for it was black owned it was a space that encouraged black artists as well as artists of other racial backgrounds and was mostly in a lot of ways anti-market in the way that it encouraged art making rather than art making for the sake of a market or for monetary gain so now i'm gonna introduce my friends that came to see um the exhibition with me would you guys like to give a little introduction Okay. Hey, everyone. My name is Battelle. Um, I'm a sophomore at Columbia. I'm studying political science and English, I think. And yeah, I went to this exhibit twice, and I enjoyed it both times, and I'm excited to talk about it with everyone here. Hi, I'm Dominic. I'm back again. Um, Yeah, Dom was in our first episode, by the way. So first episode, first season, first episode, second season. I know. I'm always inaugurating. (laughs) Um, And... I'm studying art history, so I definitely am coming from an art history background, um, and I'm, I've only seen it once, but I think I've spent a lot of time in that gallery um, when I went, and I think I had a really good look at it, and it was mm-hmm. beautiful, so yeah. And just to start the conversation, I did want to point out that two Columbia-related people are involved in the making of this exhibition. Uh, Marielle Ingram was a collaborator in the exhibition. She is, I think part of the graduate school and also kelly jones who is a professor she was involved in the making of the catalog if you're a columbia student and you have the chance to take a class with kelly jones please do it okay now on to the discussion i think first what we found really interesting when we went is to talk about the space to talk about moma to talk about what it means for a gallery to be put in another gallery um what form that takes whether or not that's good or bad or yeah whatever you guys want to say about any of that stuff yeah so i remember um we kind of debriefed the exhibition after we saw it together and one of the things we talked about was like street access how just above midtown was like very entrenched and like tethered to its community just by virtue of how the space was organized and how the space was located within the neighborhood Mm -hmm. and i think it's very clear that in midtown specifically at the moma on the third floor that it is kind of removed from its broader community it's kind of um hermetically sealed within the confines of Mm -hmm. the moma so i think from that it has like a slight detached air and i think that's just natural of most museum shows i mean some museums will try to like bridge that type of um bridge that type of dissonance but i think here it really felt palpable just because I think just above Midtown and especially the work felt so related to the, the quotidian rhythms of life and mm-hmm. um, and I think the museum itself just doesn't feel like primed for that and I feel like one of the big things that this jam advocated for and also I think David Hammond said is when he was thinking about putting his space in art in an art gallery or is putting his art gallery art in a gallery Mm -hmm. he was against having it in a white space and I feel like MoMA is like 
very very white and all mm-hmm. of the galleries around there are very white and I think the project of Bryant when she first was thinking about jam was having a space autonomous and of its own that uh, was emblematic of like possibility and black creativity and I think when you think about the MoMA it's definitely not a space associated with possibility I feel like it's very stifling and another point that I was reading about is kind of pushing the boundaries in the sense of like what is black art and kind of like black traditionalist art institutions and pushing against that and instead having a space where it was more conceptual more abstract and kind of untethered um in the sense like you didn't have to talk about race you had a host of like things that you can engage with and I think most of those things had to do directly with your life and just like and I think that's seen in like the materials also that were used yeah Mm -hmm. and I think that this uh this idea of like the personal lives of the artists became very important because just above Midtown seemed very much like a community, a living space. People would eat there. People spent all of their time there. There was this kind of constant exchange of ideas and conversation, um, which a gallery like MoMA doesn't really have. Like there are people who pay to be part of sort of the MoMA membership of whatever. um, But there is no like person you're always going to see when you go to MoMA or like a group of MoMAites that like always hang out there that aren't sort of paid that don't pay to be there so it's a very I think a different way of operating it's just a little bit less personal it's a little bit less community based um I think what was really interesting is they had like child rearing programs and as um Linda Good Bryant was a mother herself of Mm -hmm. um I can't remember it was like two or three kids um and so for her like motherhood and like the the concept of family was important. I think here, you know, we always have these conversations of like found family, chosen family. And I really think that that was part of the mission, even if it was not overt. I think in their programming, they really developed this sense of like entrenching themselves in like familial relationships. And I think that's why it was so intimate. Um, And there was also in the exhibition in like the room that bridged, it's like this like kind of small hallway that bridged the two bigger rooms. There was this um, chart and it was like, facts about jam on the left side and then facts about MoMA on the right and it talked about how the MoMA opened um you know with the help of like hundreds of donors including the Rockefellers etc and then it talked about the donors from for jam including a two thousand dollar um loan from Citibank I'm pretty sure that's what Mm -hmm. it was and then like two thousand dollars from like family and so like the the sourcing of money is also very different you can see that in terms of like their evictions it just felt like a when you were looking at the timeline and like of this story of jam it felt like a story of a family struggling more though more so than like an institution and I think that's what really appealed to me is that it felt beyond just like institution it felt like it had some type of like deeper pathos to it Mm -hmm. and going back to what Battelle was saying about like this revolutionary new way of making art uh, I want to talk about material I think that the exhibition for those who've been uh, it encompasses a huge diversity of different types of art making Um, Senga Ngudi of course is a focal point she makes works with like nylon stockings and filling them with sand and watching how they fall and the tension between them. Do you guys have any highlights in terms of different types of materials that you really loved seeing or things that seemed very revolutionary to you? 
Um, I really liked, I think, um, David Hammond, also Sidney Bloom. Just I think everyone in that exhibit had an interesting way of incorporating materials outside of what you'd traditionally see in like an art supply store and Mm -hmm. from like their own life like hair for instance was Mm -hmm. a big thing I saw and cigarette butts like there was just the creativity and the material that was used was really like a highlight for me and I think in a way it was sort of like immortalizing yourself Mm -hmm. by like encasing your own hair and like that like if you guys are, I don't know what it's called, but it was like a clothes hanger and then like. I don't know if it was a, resin or something. Resin maybe, yeah. But just like, it was a way of like keeping yourself in the conversation and maybe even creating a new conversation and thinking about how your own life is art in a way that I, I just really resonated with and I really liked it. And there was one specific artist who... It wasn't like she, she, it was more traditional materials that she used, but her name was Cynthia, I wrote it down, uh, Cynthia Hawkins, and Mm -hmm. she had that piece where it was like the universe and the galaxy, but she uh, kind of did it through a made up language, like symbols of like, that were just abstract, I couldn't connect them to anything, Um, but I think that represented the different use of materials in a way that like by using things that were non-traditional but personal to you mm-hmm. you were yeah making yourself like a part of the universe and like yeah it was beautiful in that That's way really beautiful yeah i also to name some of like the materials that like really caught my eye there was a lot of use of paper bags i forget who the artist was it was like paper bag and using like different inks and different types of paints on the paper bags i thought that was like gorgeous and very like this almost humble use of materials and then the use of stickers I thought was so potent. There's Howard, this w- Howardina Pindell. Yes. Best, like, love her so much. And there's this one piece and it's this kind of like, it's a grid, almost looks like math paper that you would get in like mm-hmm. um, primary school that like you would use to like draw charts on. And then in each of those boxes, she had this tiny little sticker with a number on it. And you can't really f- decipher what the order these numbers are in. They go up really high, like up to like 12,000 or something like that. And the I spent, I was just like up and close and personal with the artwork and just like really trying to decipher some type of like code. And I, I think what was super interesting is that they're engaging with materials, but they're also really engaging with like, um, modes of creating or just like expressions like they're playing with a lot of like abstract expressionism they're playing with a lot of modes of like non-objective art that I thought was super interesting and I'm, mm-hmm. I always I've been really interested lately in terms of how artists of color have inserted themselves into these like larger what's considered white narratives of like art making that I think is actually not true I think a lot of artists of color especially black artists have contributed so much to non-objective art and I think this was such a great display of that and how like it has influenced the broader sphere of like the New York art scene and then how that's like bled out into the rest of the world so it's just really interesting to see that like the the DNA of a lot of like non-objective art was born from places like this Mm -hmm. yeah and then to accompany those actual art pieces there's a huge amount of archival documents there's videos of what was going on in the galleries, uh, performances, dances, music. There are slides of images that were taken in the gallery and um, yeah, just other photos of artists and of the gallery space. Um, what did you think about the inclusion of those archival uh, motifs? I mean, I, for me, 
um, it really builds a wider picture, a more diverse picture of what everyday life is like. It's also really nice to see artists who usually are put up on such a pedestal be like actual normal people. Like there were some images of Senga Ningudi in which some of them, she looked kind of awkward. And I kind of liked seeing, you know, someone who, like art, art history is all about elevating these people to be kind of godlike. And I think that she just felt very normal and very, you know, approachable and, um, I also, of course, love her art, so I just like to see any pictures of her. <laughs> um. Um, I'm not really sure if I have much to say on the archive. I thought it was... I thought, like, just kind of, like, the creation of any archive, it just makes me think, like, people that were denied histories and denied, like, kind of viable past because they lacked an archive, and I think having that there and centered with all the videos and images and even just, like, keeping the bill statements and having Jam be, like, its own narrative and its own history I thought was very cool. Mm -hmm. And one thing, I kind of circling back to the materials conversation, sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> there was um, a story that there's a story that I uh, was reading about uh, that um, Brian often points to where it's David Hammond's first solo exhibition and it's where he had like a collection of like hair and like grease and random things like that and kind of everyone saw it and everyone was like what is this like this is not art and he kind of and Brian encouraged us they encouraged the discussion and I think that is the whole goal of JAM is to have like an ongoing discourse and ongoing discussion. Mm -hmm. And I think even through the keeping of archives, like that humanizes. And as you said, like points to the life of the, the space and encourages us to engage also in discussion. And yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but I think for the archive um, and like the crea creation of discourse and like how things live beyond like, it's like momentary life. It was interesting that like once after the final eviction, everything was put into storage and Lynn, um, Bryant really just wanted to have everything like kept in one space and she like kept really good care of it. And that's why we were able to have an exhibition of this caliber of like such an expansive exhibition that like covers so much history. Um, and I think that was super interesting is to see like this, this legacy had been confined into this like random storage space, and now it's like back into the world, and like these dis discourses are reemerging. Yeah, it's like when do we decide that this narrative is important to showcase, and when has it become relevant again? Mm -hmm. Is interesting, and again, making it relevant in a place that is so. I'm sorry, the MoMA is so counterintuitive to the goals of Jam mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that it, it's just it's really fascinating how that was reconciled. Yeah, definitely, there's a tension there. Um, just finishing off the archival thing, I think that having those bills, so they had an entire wall which were pasted on different bills, outstanding bills that they had, and then of course that was part of their constant evictions and monetary state because they refused to live only to work and they refused to live only to make money. Um, I think that that was very poignant in the reality of doing something like that. Like it's not so easy. We're not living. I don't, I don't know. I, I think there's so many stories of um, galleries and it's like, oh, we just had a dream and then it all worked out fine. But seeing it kind of, seeing the struggle, I think was very poignant. 
Um, but I think that we're going to have to start moving towards our final reflections. One thing that you can include in your final reflection is, which we maybe I would love to talk about this longer, but like to talk about the legacy of Jam, to talk about what it means today, to talk about what it means to have at the end of the exhibition um, pictures of Lorraine O'Grady's new, quote unquote, new like persona, um, which was the knight figure. And also um, Linda Goodbryant's new project in the sort of farming sector. I don't know if you guys want to talk about that very briefly, mm -hmm. but also, you know, sum summarizing stuff, what you thought of it. Um, I can't remember exactly what the metric we used last week, but uh, last episode, but maybe something how many arts out of fart or how many something out of tens you give the exhibition. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely want to say outside of the context of the MoMA, just as like content itself, I thought it was pretty well curated. Um, although felt a little busy. I think they didn't give it enough space in the museum and I wish it had a little bit more space. So I would want to say, give it like a 7.5 out of art okay. farts. Okay. Um, um, but I, I just really, really appreciated the use of archive. I think that's one of the things that really jumped out at me and how they wove that into the art itself and how it became this like timeline and this history, a retelling of like the rise and fall of this like beautiful community. Um, well, not necessarily the fall, but like how it kind of became less centralized. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that legacy continues to live with us with a lot of up-and-coming black artists who are really re-engaging with past histories especially art historical histories i think like that is something that a lot of current artists are doing um especially when it comes to like um black domestic life i think that's something that has re-emerged i'm thinking dominic chambers for example um and so it's really exciting to see this discourse come back to life and I'm really really grateful that they were able to showcase this maybe not at the MoMA but somewhere mm -hmm. else it would have been equally as brilliant but I'm regardless I am excited and so happy to have seen this it's also important to say we haven't been to any of these but there are a series of like extra parts of the exhibition that take place in other settings which I don't actually know a huge amount about but they are not all MoMA specific so yeah but we can't talk about those because we don't know anything about them. Anyway, back to Patel. Um, I thought that one thing that the MoMA lacked but is so central to this exhibit is kind of the way that we can interact with the pieces. And I mm -hmm. I think like that, in a, like the interaction element and the fact that we're supposed to be engaging in, in discussion after seeing these pieces that kind of push the boundary. We're supposed to be kind of reconciling that within ourselves and in that I think it may not have seemed that this is like a conversation that has been ongoing and like like it's in the MoMA it's in the Brooklyn Museum recently but I feel like this is something that black artists have always been thinking about and that it's something that has been happening we just have to like kind of tune into those things that have been happening so if I had to rate it I would give it I would give it a 7 out of 10 also. I just feel like it missed the interactivity element and like, yeah, and just like it was stifling in the sense like you couldn't really, as Dom said, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with Patel. Mm -hmm. And um, I, of course, touch is very important to Senga Ngudi. I don't want to only talk about her, but um, 
she in her RSVP series it's all about interaction um, which you can't do but maybe that's just the realities of um, the times that we live in you know um, but I would say first room huge amount of big hitters if you're gonna go just hang out in the first room why not um, that it's very busy uh, it you know is all about creating a legacy for this gallery these are my those are my only final thoughts um, and thank you guys so much <laughs> for coming uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to I feel like I shouldn't rate it out of 10 because I maybe I'm a neutral observer host <laughs> character in this um, but it was good and if you can please go see it it as, uh, as I said at the beginning it ends on the 18th of February which is imminent so um, hurry your hurry your mm, to hurry your this butts exhibition. over there <laughs> thank you so much thank you um, have a great week everyone bye <laughs> thanks to Georgina Brainerd for getting that interview for being the host of Art Fart um, she's wonderful um, finally we have one last segment we have Ferris of them all um, if Lex and Lucas seem a little bit down today that's because their Philadelphia Eagles just lost the Super Bowl yesterday in a brutal defeat um, so why don't we go to them now uh, for Ferris and them all it's been a lovely day today is Monday February 13th it's down 922 you've been listening to Monday Morning Side thanks for listening Hi, I'm Lucas. I'm Lex. And we're standing outside Ferris Dining Hall at 8.15 in the morning. The only open dining hall on campus. And we're here to see who's the Ferris of the mall. Hi, we're here with... Daniel. Daniel, what are you getting this morning? I'm getting breakfast after doing an awesome gym session. And that's basically the beginning of my day. And then just a full day of classes, studying, and all that fun Columbia stuff. Damn. That's awesome. What, uh, what, what breakfast are you getting? I'm getting an omelet. I usually go with the same thing. I'm afraid of change. So it's spinach, ham, uh, cheese, chicken, and tomatoes, and mushrooms. That sounds great. Yeah. And, and a little oatmeal always helps, always helps too. And do you always come to Ferris? For breakfast, yeah, always. Um, for everything else, sometimes I'll come to Ferris, but most of the time I'll end up going to John Jay. Is it, are you here be, only because of the gym, or do you have something else after this? Um, so I have class at 11.40, but I'm actually going to go back to my apartment, go for a quick run, and then shower, change, and come back. I spent all day on campus now. It sucks. Wow. What class do you have at 11.40? Uh, university writing. The American studies uh, section, I guess. Yes. And what do you study? I'm studying psychology. So yeah, hopefully I'll be finishing up next spring. I think will be my last semester at Columbia. That's awesome. And one last question. Do you have any advice for the listeners at home? Um, yeah. It's easy to feel lazy, but like, just go to the gym, work out, like, get that stuff done. Because uh, I was like in a pretty bad car accident and had to like start all over. And it's really easy to just spend the day in bed. It's awesome too, but it's not the right answer. That's, That's fantastic. And inspiring. Thank yeah. you. Have a good day. Hi, we're here with Brian. Brian, what are you getting this morning? An omelet with eggs. Uh, I mean, <laughs> onions, peppers, cheese, and tomatoes. Sounds delicious. Is that what you always get? Typically. And why are you at Ferris Dining Hall so early in the morning? 
because it's the only one open. Exactly. Um, and would you be in Ferris if there were another dining hall open? Perhaps not. Uh, where are you headed after this or before this? Why do you have to be up? Uh, I'm writing. I'm getting poetry done for class. That's incredible. Are you in a poetry class? Yeah. Uh, traditions and poetry. Wow. What are you writing your poem about? Can we ask? Uh, metaphysics. So, like, uh, this is about God birth. God wow. birth. Wow. Yeah. And does that have anything to do with omelets or Ferris Dining Hall? <laughs> no, just uh, keeping me awake and, and uh, fueled to write it, I guess. That's fantastic. Honestly. One last question. Do you have any advice for the listeners at home? Get your food somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And we're back with the upstairs portion of Who's the Ferris of the Mall. So we're going to start up with the egg review. And the so, next portion of our show. And so let's jump right in with the eggs, um, which are heavily, and mine are sort of brown. Uh, a little watery. Definitely better than last week. Yeah. But um, not good. I'm, I'm just now considering what might be like a profound flaw in our methodology, but have you been salting the eggs? No. I haven't either. But I think for the sake of, you know, one, just isolating a single variable. Yeah, but like, if we're like talking about how much we enjoy the eggs, shouldn't we be like making them the way that we would actually want it? Like, I've never eaten like unsalted scrambled eggs in my life. Like, Okay, folks, stay tuned for next week where we may be changing the, our uh, yeah. egg review policy, practices and policy. But in the meantime, moving on to the, the tater tots. No hash browns today, only tater tots. Only tater tots. And this time there were two different tater tot buckets, each of which I think had a different batch of tater tot. Well, mine is soggy. Batch one was soggy, but I'm okay. gonna try batch two. Okay. And, dear listeners, as I predicted, batch two, much more crispy. And so which one was on the left and which one was on the right? Batch two was on the right. So if you're in Ferris Dining Hall in like the next 15 to 20 minutes. And facing the... And facing towards like the low, breakfast main line. Or the breakfast main line, more closer to you. You should definitely go for the one on the right. It also just looks crispier, like, you can just sort of figure it out. Normally pretty discerning. I don't know how I missed that. Okay, let's have some some sausage patty. Mine are very dark brown today. Like solid and good? Yeah, medium. Good. Not super greasy, which is good. And now the gravy. It's like pretty much normal, peppery, and like full of like sort of strange ham chunks and biscuit. It's good. Mine's drier than is my preference. Yeah, I like it when they're wetter biscuits. But this is it was it's it's good. It's very good. It would be like a good biscuit for a sandwich, I think. Like if you wanted to cut your biscuit open and do like sausage patty, egg, mm-hmm. maybe a little tater tot if you were in that sort of mood. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you could really do it with this biscuit. So, mm -hmm. I think right. all in all, one of the better Ferris main lines we've seen. Agreed. So we've heard about what a lot of different people are eating today in Ferris Dining Hall, and now it's time to hear what's eating Lucas. So tell us, Lucas, what's eating you? I mean, to be honest, Lex, at 8.30 in the morning on February 13th, 2023, there's really only one thing that could be eating me as a Philadelphian, and that is the horrendous, heartbreaking, brutal loss that the Eagles suffered um, last night in the Super Bowl. And... Look, it was, it was down to the wire. It was a close mm -hmm. game. I think we gave it our all, mm -hmm. barring the fact that we had, like, one genuine fumble and then one fumble that only got taken back by a, the referee. Like, mistakes were made. Mistakes I'll were admit made. that. But, like, okay, that last call, that last drive up the field, whatever, the, the Chiefs are doing it, and they're whatever, they're, like, third and eight, right by the goal line. Uh -huh. And the Eagles get called on this, like, honestly kind of trumped up charge of like of holding of hold yeah it, like, like you look at the clip he wasn't really holding and all of a sudden the game instead of being this like close tight the chiefs have a field goal can the eagles mm -hmm. make it back up the field in two minutes game becomes the chiefs just have like a first down right by the goal line and all they did was kneel and reset the clock so that the eagles had it when the eagles finally got it they had like what four seconds four seconds left, left or eight seconds maybe yeah as you know in the name of Full disclosure, as someone who is also from Philadelphia, I feel exactly the same way. So maybe this is not the most yeah. There will be unbiased no discourse. Balanced discussion on who's the fairest of them all about the Super Bowl. It was a travesty. It was a travesty. We um, were robbed. Mm -hmm. um, the Chiefs did play really well. Like, congratulations to Andy Reid. He's a fantastic coach. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, yeah, a fan once an eagle, maybe always an eagle or something. Yeah, so like, maybe he, and never a chief. Maybe yeah. they, maybe an eagle won the Super Bowl. Yeah, that does, that's like a great take. I think that's our new position, mm -hmm. is that an eagle won. Uh -huh. And that's all that matters. Like, Andy Reid and a Kelsey brother won. You get, if you get and, confused about which Kelsey yeah. is which. Who cares who is who? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. All right. I yeah. feel like now it's time to move on to our final sort of segment, which is who's the fairest of them all, or we decide. We had two just incredibly inspiring um, interviews today. We had, like, the most motivated man. Like, a real go-getter. And a poet. And a poet. Someone just, um, like, awake in the morning so that they can be writing their poetry. Yeah, it's really incredible. Um, but I think that we have to give it to Daniel just because, like, I was going to go to bed after this, and now I'm not. And yeah. his story was incredibly inspiring. Um, yeah, very motivating. Really a great Ferris of the Mall interview. And truly, this week's fairest of them all truly that's all for this week uh we're lex and lucas and we'll see you next monday thanks to lex and lucas as always sorry about that eagles loss it's 8 32 next up is serial music thank you for listening my name is josh casali uh, i've been your host have a good morning